Hi, my name is Charlie Bird, and for almost 40 years, I was a journalist reporting on some of the biggest stories of the day in Irish public life. Today's interview is about a story and a terrible event that has perhaps affected me more than many, many of the stories I was involved in. That devastating fire at the Stardust nightclub in Artane, Dublin, on St. Valentine's Night, 1981. I have stayed with this story and it has stayed with me because of the remarkable survivors and the families over 40 years now. I want to introduce you to one of those survivors now, Jimmy Fitzpatrick. Jimmy, we go back a fairly long way. You're a survivor of the Stardust, but can I just start, Jimmy, by asking you, we're now at the 40th anniversary of the fire. What does it mean to you? Oh, well, hello, Jerry. Yeah, it means everything to me. Uh, the fact that uh, I'm still around today, 40 years on, I've survived one of the biggest disasters in the history of the state. Uh, and yes, I'm still here to tell the tale and, and let people know, you know, that uh, things still need to go on. And in that respect, and also to, to say to people that it should never be forgotten. So... So it should never happen again, you know? I know it's difficult for you. I know you've spoken about it, but bring me back, Jimmy, to that night. Who you were, what age you were, and just, first of all, the night planning to go to the disco. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, actually, uh, yeah. Going going back to when, yeah, when I recall now, I think how, how young I was back then, I was... I was 16. I was a month away from being 17. The average age of the person that was frequented at the place was between 16 to 20 year olds. Uh, on that particular night, we, we used to frequent the place every week or every second week. Uh, and we would go down to the starters with all the guys that I worked with in, in Northside Shopping Centre and Super Queen Northside in particular. Uh, and it was an event that everybody was really, really looking forward to because it was as we say, it was the eve of Valentine's uh, Day. It was the Friday the 13th going into the early hours of 14th when the fire took place. Uh, and we were all kind of getting ready and looking forward to being down there because the, the banter all week and the, the talk all week was it's going to be a great old night and everyone together and having a laugh. So the preparation, I suppose, would have taken, taken place the week before when everybody was trying Building, getting built up to say attending the status uh, down there that night. Uh, so yeah, I, I was an apprentice butcher in Super Queen, so there would have been a bit of laugh and a bit of you know crack about the place and uh, let's let's get together and who's going with who and you know the usual banter with with uh, with, with three and 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 it, and, and whatnot. So yeah, it was as I say the build up for us. Uh, at the time was kind of like making sure that everybody's going to be on board and we're all going to get down there but to, 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 when you attended the place there was a there was a system uh, so to speak at the door uh, where every second or third couple would get in but we, we kind of copped this weeks before to make sure that we all got in that night we kind of would leave the queue to, sell, to see how many they were getting in the door up front and then we would say, look, let them go ahead of us because they're stopping every fourth couple 
Harvey Fort group. Uh, and then uh, that way we know we'd get into the nightclub that night, you know. Uh, and we would tell our friends, look, stay far behind us or, you know, down the way. So we could all make sure that we got in there. Yeah, so it was, uh, look, it wasn't the first time we'd been there and we'd had some brilliant, brilliant nights before. And as I said before, the people uh, that were there that night, uh, Anthony Keegan and myself had spoke about this many times before, that we'd had some brilliant nights down there with people that have that passed away on a faithful night. And to forget them nights in particular would be like, to would be like whitewashing the memory of, you know, them people that were with us because on that particular night, you know, we spent time with them, they, we shared laughs with them, but we'd done that many weeks before in that very same venue. So we have to remember that we, we had great times there before in the past. Tell me, Jimmy, how the night unfolded. I mean, when you realised that there was something awful, awful happening. Well, it actually unfolded in, in, in a sense that when we got into the place, we realised that the general area that we would normally sit in uh, to the left, the alcove to the left was, was the shutters were down on that and they had the venue, like it was opened up at the back. Uh, the venue went up like a, a theatre or a, a cinema, so to speak, so interred uh, seating up the back of the, to the, to the back of the, the, uh, the building. So that, that area generally wasn't open. Uh, it was, only some of it was open, but it was it was a much bigger area. So we suppose on the night we thought, well, he's, he's going to pack this place tonight because, you know, it's Valentine's Eve and there's going to be more people wanting to be down here. So we knew kind of it's going to get fairly, fairly full in here tonight, you know. But having said that, it wasn't overcrowded on the night uh, for the size of the venue that it was. Uh, but it was a result because we had a routine. We always sat in a certain area. But that, as we say, that petition was closed off. But as the night went on, uh, we could feel the place getting warmer and warmer and warmer. Now, as I said, the place wasn't overcrowded. So it didn't seem like there was, it was that many bodies that was building up the heat. But it just felt very warm uh, and getting hotter as the night went on. And of course, you'd be up dancing. You'd, you'd probably have a drink. You'd get up and dance again. But... Maybe you thought it was just that, but then when there was an announcement made that there was a small fire on the premises and not the panic, you know, everything's under control. Of course, everyone then is looking to find out where's this small fire that they're talking about. Uh, until a bouncer rushed in and pulled up the shutter of the alcove in the in the area where we would have normally sat, and there was a, a fire kind of uh, on the back of a seat. Uh, and that's, you know, straight away I, I thought, this is not for me, I'm now here, and was running for the door. Uh, but the DJ was announcing to the, uh, you know, everything's under control, don't panic. But within seconds of that, you could hear the mic hit the floor and the DJ was gone. And the place was in pitch black and people were screaming and running. The fire, I think, I think the bouncer at the time, I'm, from what I recall and remember, tried to tackle the fire with a fire extinguisher. But uh, obviously he wasn't very well trained in, in, in fire extinguishers because he was aiming. He was aiming it straight in through the flames but was getting nowhere with it. He eventually dropped the fire extinguisher and that's when everything kind of 
broke out and everybody was running everywhere in pandemonium. And, and what happened to you? What happened to you? Well, well, me in particular, I, I got out into the into the into the fire and was was you know pretty much out. And I looked back and I seen two friends of mine and they were screaming, but going nowhere in a panic. So I just thought, well, stuff this. I had to go back and ran back for them and flung them out the door. But as I did, I uh, I unfortunately tripped on I don't know what it was a coat or a handbag or something and. Down I went, and as I hit the floor, everybody was just trampling over me and running across. The place went into darkness then. The, the lights failed. Everything went pitch black. There was screaming. There was pandemonium. And I was left crawling on the floor to see how, how I could get out, back out this way. But I eventually crawled, which I was on carpet at the time. And then I had, I felt wood, and I thought, I'm going the wrong way. I'm going the wrong way because I'm on the dance floor because I could feel the wood. But I just kept crawling and crawling and, you know, the flames and the, the smoke and especially the smoke, you just couldn't, you couldn't breathe. It was, it was, it was thick uh, smoke. It was like you could nearly chew the smoke. It was that thick. It was, but it was burning your throat as it went into your mouth and your nose. So I was on the ground and crawling along where I could get a bit of some sort of air. Uh, and as I crawled, I eventually heard all this commotion of kicking and, and I just jumped up and started kicking with them and we ended up falling out the back of an exit where with a chain on the door swinging off it so luckily I did get that far uh, and then eventually we came around the front of the building uh, and there was a few angles surviving and as they arrived uh, some guy would be sitting beside a trailer there's there's a kind of a car park area where he used to have trailers uh, and I was sitting down and he said, come on, we get you into this. And I said, no, I, I need to talk to mom and dad. I need to go home. He said, no, we need to get you into the ambulance. So as he brought me to the ambulance, the ambulance was full. And he brought me to the front of the ambulance uh, beside the driver. And the driver looked at me and says, sorry, I can't take anyone in the front. I'm not allowed. Take him in the front. But as he was staring at me, your man says, you're effing taking him. And threw me into the front of the ambulance and slammed the door. The other man just looked at me and took off at a rate of speed, so, yeah. And Jimmy, what injuries did you have? Uh, I, I had third-degree burns uh, to my arms and hands and back. Uh, I was the worst born to actually survive, and I was the longest in the hospital. So, uh, How long did you spend in hospital, Jimmy? Well, from that night till the June, uh, I think June the 17th, I think when I was released from hospital. But that wasn't the end of it. It was just uh, as being treated then as an outpatient. I was, I went to intent, from intensive care. I was shifted to steam just to get skin grass because they had to remove all the skin from my arms and hands uh, in, in, the, in the hope of saving them. Uh, that story which my mother always says is when the doctor said to her that night, you know, look, we're doing all we can to save his hands. She repeats, don't worry, saving his hands, just save his life, you know. Uh, say that again, Jimmy, it's really important. What did your mother say to the doctor? My mother said, don't mind saving his hands, save his life, you know. So uh, it, it, it was like, if you, anyone that knows me and knows what my hands are like, you, you, you could understand now, like, 
they're quite disfigured. And uh, in, in in retrospect, I, I can understand where my mum was going, but thankfully they didn't. They did save my hands and they got me over to Stevens eventually for skin grass and stuff. But you were one of the luckiest survivors. You were in the longest in hospital. I mean, you, Jimmy, of all the people who went through the mill of the survivors of the Stardust, and we're, what, we're talking about 200 people who survived were in hospital. Uh, you really uh, had one of the roughest times of all. Isn't that correct? Well, certainly. Like, I mean, it was, it was such an uphill battle. I mean, it was one step forward, 10 steps back every time. Uh, like uh, they, I'd been. I think they'd done a twenty-four hour operation that particular night in order to save me hands and remove all the twenty-four hours. Yeah, it was it was completely through the night, and Mister Corrigan and Mister Dugan were the were the were the surgeons, and they just uh, for for want of a better word, I I can only imagine they'd done a tag team on it, and. As, as I then subsequently found out through one of the surgeons that it was a flip of a coin whether to save his hands or not they, just, they pretty much flipped the coin and said look let's go for it and see can we do this but uh, I, I a lot of trouble after that I lungs collapsed I, I was back in back in theatre a number of times uh, this was in the Mallow Hospital uh, and they just wanted this try and keep me right before they were trying to keep my lungs right and then at the same time prevent gangrene setting into my arms uh, with no skin you know so every morning you woke up well when I did come around which was a couple of days later every morning you woke up they had to do dressings on your arms so you can only imagine it's stuff from a horror for them they're taking dressings off and you're not looking at your hands and your arms as you used to like as I say it was a Apprentice Butcher used to be pretty versatile with a knife and be able to kind of, you know, manually lift things. And now you're looking at your hands and arms with no skin. Like you can see your muscles, your veins, you know, all that. That in itself can be mind-blowing and it could send you off the deep end. It's stuff from a horror movie, you know. You were a miracle survivor. That's the truth. Everybody, if you mention the name Jimmy Fitzpatrick, everybody talks about you as being the miracle survivor of that night. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones. Make friends with innovation. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. Coming soon on the Senior Times, it's Rugby Legends. Join Gary Cook as he meets some of Ireland's greatest ever players. Listen on as the legendary Willie John McBride recounts tales of the 1974 Lions Tour to South Africa and the now infamous 99 call. 
Ollie Campbell recalls ousting Tony Ward from the Irish team and how it was bigger news than the Pope's visit. Former Irish and Springboks legend John Robbie tells us why he was wrong to go to South Africa and find out what it's really like to be facing down the giants of international rugby with Mick Galway, Mick Quinn and Hugo McNeil. That's Rugby Legends, coming soon on the Senior Times. Jimmy, can I ask you, how many of your friends, how many 48 people died that night? How many of those would you have known? Personally, I would have known six. Close, closely, I would have known six. Uh, but uh, I would have known an awful lot more that was there that night. But uh, And I would have known one of pe- one or two people that passed. But I wasn't, uh, uh, say, friends per se with them. But I would have known them, you know, to other people. And when did you realise the scale of what happened that night? I mean, when you were operated, who told you afterwards the scale of what had happened? It, it, well, actually, it wasn't until I was uh, it wasn't until I was shifted to I I kind of knew like that I was bad and things had gotten worse. Like when I came to, uh, there was uh, you know as I was on a respirator, so everything. I couldn't talk. I couldn't say anything. All my signals were done by eyes, like, you know, kind of motioning uh, my mother and my father. Uh, it's it's odd because we only spoke about this last week, but ma'am, and she said to me that one of the nurses who was looking after me in intensive care was was trying to bathe me hair and stuff. And this will tell you how bad the things were. As she was washing my hair, this was days after my operations, after she's washing my hair a bit at the back, she says, is he blonde? Because my mother didn't recognise me. She, I was, you know, I was swollen. So she couldn't recognise me at all. She said, no, that's not Jimmy. Jimmy's blonde hair. So she, when the nurse started to bathe my hair and start washing my hair, she realised, he's blonde hair. That's how bad the smoke was and how thick it was. They didn't even recognise that I was blonde, you know, at the time. So, uh so, like, and you swell, you swell an awful lot. I swelled three times, you know, your normal, your normal width, so I was, like, unrecognisable to, to, to my parents, you know, so... Uh, Jimmy, I've met you a good few times, and clearly you're, you're a really amazing character, and you're so full of life and, and vibrant. But the truth is that every time I meet you or look at you, my my eyes, and it's awful to say this, my eyes are drawn to your hands. Does that happen all the time when people meet you? No, sometimes, sometimes it does, and and others it doesn't. Like, I would get the odd person looking and, and, and kind of having a look at the hands, and that's a natural reaction uh, for people to do, like, you know. Uh, but and, and it certainly doesn't bother me in any way, shape or form. Uh, but uh, it's funny, I was actually in work uh, a couple of years ago, we were having a bit of a laugh and I happened to say something, uh, one of the girls had dropped something, you know, and I said, oh, I couldn't understand if I dropped that, you know, with my hand. And she happened to say, well, what's wrong with your hands? And I said, well, you have a day off, and, you know, and she just she just laughed. She said, oh, shit, I forgot. But uh, she said, it, you know, the, she said to me, your personality takes over and people don't look at your hands after that. 
you know, so that was a nice compliment, I thought, you know. Do you tell people that you're a survivor of the Stardust? I've had people ask, do, do you mind Do you mind me asking what's happened to you? And then I would tell them yes. Or I've had a guy say to me, uh, well, actually, two different people at uh, a particular stage, oh, I see you have that as well. And I went, sorry, excuse me. And they went, I see you suffer with that as well. I said, now what was that? And they said, oh, the arthritis of the hands. I said, oh, no, I said, no, I was a victim of the status. So, like, if people ask, I would tell them. And if people are interested, I would, you know, certainly tell them. Uh, and uh, as I said before, like, I'm, I'm involved in school by football. So to, to be a lot of young lads and, and children today that would know nothing about the status. And when you're coaching football, you can see them. Their eyes are drawn to your hands because you're pointing out directions and instructions and stuff. So they would be kind of staring a little bit and you would kind of catch them and they'd look away. But uh, I would then say to them, look, in case you're wondering what happened, I'll give you the brief background. Go home and ask your parents. <laughs> but the funny thing about that now is most of our parents wouldn't even know about it at this stage, you know. When you go into buildings now and over the years... Do you look at the exits? Do you, are you more conscious now, given the hell that you went through? Are you more conscious now of of of, of your surroundings? Yeah, absolutely. Like I, generally, when I walk into a building, I I will map it in seconds. I'll map like where I am, where's the nearest exit. If I'm in the toilet, where's the nearest exit to there? If I'm at the bar and something happens. Whereas the nearest exit to that location. In fact, I have a, I have a little thing that I do with a couple of friends of mine, and they hate when they get caught out, but they do generally. Uh, and we would be somewhere, and as we go in, we'd sit down. I like, just say to lads, "Okay, close your eyes," and you could hear one or two of them saying, "Oh no, I didn't map the place." Because I'd ask them, "Why, if that happens tonight, which way are we getting out?" That's, and someone would go be pointing in different directions and guessing but like it's, it's something that's instilled in me now I don't do it with everybody and I don't do it all the time I just I just there's a certain group of lads that I go away watching football with and when you're away in a foreign place it's even different so I would say it to them there you know but not 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 home so much but uh, I would well my children would be brought up to know and to say look be careful when you're going into a place always have a look out and always be be aware of your surroundings and if there's anything blocking an exit bring it to the attention of the you know the managers or whoever and say them look that's been moved and why is that there and you've got a right to do that you know so and have you ever done that have you yourself have you ever spoken up and said to people there's something there that I don't like that you're conscious that there might be a chain on a door or something has it ever happened to you I have uh, on a number of occasions uh and in one particular uh, incident, uh, we were sitting in, I won't name the place, <laughs> but uh, we were sitting in an establishment in the town and there's a front bar and there's a there's a back bar and the, the doors are off different streets. And we were sitting, say, at the back bar and uh, this young lounge girl comes around, uh, came around to the, uh, the area we were in and we were sitting with an exit door behind us, and she took the door off the latch, which opened in, which incidentally opened in, and she takes the door off the latch and closed it, and I said, 
So I could see the guys looking at me straight away saying, this is not going to go down well at all. So I just said to her, sorry, excuse me. I says, uh, you've just closed an exit door there. I says, can you mind, uh, do you mind me asking what the reason for that is? And she goes, oh, the manager told me to do it. I said, well, look, can you get your manager for me? I says, that can't be closed. I says, that's breaking all the, you know, uh, that's completely against the Fire Act of 1981. I says, the exit should be remain open with the patrons on the premises. And she said, oh, we'll get the manager for you. You need to take it up then. So, of course, the manager comes up uh, with a dreadful attitude saying, I believe somebody here has a problem. Uh, if you have a problem, you can leave. And I just happened to say, look, it's not us with the problem. It's you. It's just because if you don't open that exit door, we will be doing the fire department immediately. Says, and uh, I says, we'll have this place closed down. I says, because you can't be locking the door. And in an instant, he went, I know who you are. And I says, it doesn't matter who I am. I says, do you know everybody behind me? I says, because these are patrons on your premises that could be now uh, in a catastrophe beyond your imagination should anything happen. I says, so trust me, you need to open the door. And he went, oh, I, I have to close it because there's no barman up the back here. And a million excuses came out. I says, there is no excuse. I says, I says there's, uh, the doors were locked in premises before and excuses were given that there was people letting their friends in so we locked the doors and chained them. If, you, if you're worried about that, put a bouncer there, put a barman there. I says, but you can't lock the door, simple as. So he sent the young girl back up to open the door. She came up Opened the door, couldn't reach the latch, but opens up with a fire extinguisher placed at the bottom of it. So, of course, I call her again. And you can see her eyes went up to heaven going, not again, what does this guy want? And I said, listen, look, I'm not being smart or anything, but can I just ask you a question? She said, yes. I says, where did you get the fire extinguisher? She says, over there down the stairs. I said, okay. Now, say the barman's trying to use that fire extinguisher and there's a fire down there tonight and he wants to get that. Where is it? She's over here at the door. I says, okay, can you put that back? I said, if you can't reach that latch, we'll do it for you. But put the forward extinguisher back to where it is. So silly things to happen that, you know, basically can cause, you know, mayhem. So you, you really think that all of us should always be on our guard if we go into some place and we see something that may not be right. You, you Clearly what you're telling us that all of us, anybody who's listening to you today... We should always speak up. Absolutely. And it's your God-given right to speak up. You have a right to speak up. And nobody should... Like, if they say, look, well, if you're not happy with it, get lost and out you go, do pick up the phone to the guards or pick up the phone to the local fire station and say, listen, this guy is... like We've no problem leaving the premises, but there's an, so many people still in there and this is what's wrong with the place and he has chairs stacked up against the door or he has a skip across the back of it or whatever. Whatever reason that their exits are blocked or there's something that's that's not right within the place, yes, you should speak up because you could be potentially saving, you know, the uh, 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 terrible, like, the terrible events that started to happen should never happen again and you could be the one that potentially could stop that happening. Your free travel card can be used on all expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway.
Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones. Make friends with innovation. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times, the magazine and website for people who don't act their age. Or maybe you have a loved one or a friend who you know would love to read more. You can buy a subscription and have the magazine delivered direct to their door. To subscribe to Senior Times, visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash senior times. Jimmy, is it true, I think you're like maybe a cat with, with nine lives, you escaped some other difficulties, is that true? A bomb blast, um, another fire and a, a, a fire in the plane, is that correct? <laughs> <laughs> you make me sound like, <laughs> make me sound like a bit of a jinx here, Charlie, but yeah, it is true, yeah. Uh, the, I was, uh, we were caught up in the... We were caught up. We were coming back from a, from a wedding in in Belfast, uh, and we stopped in Banbridge uh, uh, a while back. We stopped for uh, say lunch or whatever. And while we were there for lunch, there was a the the the, the bombing in Banbridge went off. But it, 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 the the incredible thing about that was that we we were and here's the the crazy thing. We were looking for a temple, a sewing temple for my uh, mother-in-law. Uh, with Princess Diana on it. <laughs> I know it sounds ridiculous, but that's the truth. And we were going from shop to shop looking for these timbles to see if anybody could sell a timble. And of course, the weird looks that we were getting was, was unbelievable. A uh, couple of people with southern accents looking for a timble uh, with Princess <laughs> Diana on it. <laughs> uh, so anyway, we were crossing this road and there was this car parked at a ridiculous angle that I didn't see it at the time, but it bumped me knee off the bumper and I just happened to say to my my uh, my then wife Stephanie uh, I said look at the way this guy's off the park his car here's a guy giving tickets out he's definitely getting a ticket for this so as we went on we went up the road and we went into a hotel up the top of the up the top of the uh, the, the, the main street so to speak and we were in there having lunch and uh, I got up to go to the bar to get the to get, to get the bill and my father-in-law says, just see how much it is and we'll, we'll sort it out. As I stood up, there was a bomb blast and I was flung forward uh, onto the chairs and my wife was uh, standing beside me. She was thrown to the ground and there was a, oddly enough, there was a, a, a disco ball, you know, these balls with all the... Yes, yeah, yeah. Fell to the ground and cut her leg, uh, on uh, the, cut the right hand side of her leg. Uh, my mother-in-law was downstairs in the, in the bathroom, in the toilets, and she never heard the blast at all. The bomb blast went above. So she didn't even hear the bomb blast. Uh, but uh, we were... The, the false salem was kind of at an angle. There was a few little bit of debris falling down, but nothing major in that building. It was the car that I'd bumped into that had oh actually God. blown up. And everybody had been up to the top, so they got a call. And everybody was up behind these, uh, you know, the, the police tape. And we happened to say, what happened? And they went, 
the bomb down there in the car just to the right. I suddenly just looked at me and says, my God, she says, that's the car you bumped into. I said, I don't believe this. It's unbelievable. So anyway, we, we left there and got home and thankfully safe and nobody died. But uh, I think the Enniskillen bombing was a couple of weeks after that. Uh, Jimmy, we're moving on now in our chat. Over the past, well, for so long, the relatives of uh, the 48 who died have been campaigning so hard for justice. Tell me about that campaign and why it's so important. As you said, maybe a lot of young people now don't know the name Starless, but I still think they do. Um, but, you know, it's now back in the news because there's going to be a new inquest. But tell me about the campaign over the last 40 years for justice. Uh, well, to, to, put it, to put it mildly, uh, it's, been a, it's been a long and arduous and very hard campaign. Uh, as you know, uh, Anthony Keegan and, and John Keegan, uh, who, was, uh, who was a founder member of the Status Victims Committee, uh, started this campaign many, many years ago. Uh, and after the tribunal, the original tribunal had had, had been, uh, you know, our opinion on that. But the, the verdict of the original tribunal was that it was probable arson. Now, so I know for a fact that I didn't commit any arson and anybody that I was with didn't commit arson. And certainly the 48 people that perished and their souls that night, uh, they didn't commit any arson. So it didn't sit very well with us. And and, and sure, why would it? Yeah, I came to the uh, Hillsborough disaster where they blamed the fans for the crushing of all the victims there. That's exactly what happened to us. They, they turned the... They blamed you, the young people in there. Yes, exactly. They pointed a finger at us, you know? So obviously that's why we got on this campaign to, to say, look, no, this is wrong and it's completely wrong. Now, Without going into the ins and outs of a, such a long campaign, because I wouldn't say we'd have enough enough time, Charlie. But the, to 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 move it along, so to speak, the campaign had been going on for ages, and you know, eventually uh, there was there was a, a review of the original the original findings uh, by Justice Paul Coffey, uh, by Senior Counsel Paul Coffey, I should say, and he had found that you know. To say probable arson is not uh, correct, and you can't say that because there's no evidence to say it was arson. You know, there's no evidence to say that it wasn't, but there's no evidence to prove that it was arson. So therefore, the probable arson should be removed from the original verdict, which was removed from the original verdict of, of the tribunal, which then gives the tribunal no footing or to, to, no, no ground to stand on because now there's no verdict, you know, at all. So it's, it, it, for me, it was just a waste of people's money and, you know, a waste of taxpayers' money, that's why, you know, uh, and we all know that, you know, the people that, that were involved in the status, the people that suffered the most, gained nothing from that, you know. So you're still looking for justice, you're still looking for the truth, is that right? Exactly, the truth is what we need, the truth, and that's what we've always, you know, maintained should happen. Uh, so the, the campaign for the truth had, had to uh, had to uh, kick off. And we've, 
you, you probably know, as you said there yourself, that there's a new inquest coming up. And that came about from the, the truth campaign, the postcard campaign that we've done up and down the country uh, to get people to sign a petition so that we could get a new inquest uh, so we can establish the cause of death of the 48 victims. And once we get the cause of death, we will then have a reason as to why it happened. Jimmy, do you still have flashbacks? Do you still sometimes wake up in the night and is there something there? Does it often happen to you? Not as often. Not as often. I used to in the early days, yes. Uh, but I suppose with the passage of time, you know, you, so many other things fill your mind, you know, and so many other things, you know. You, you, as I said before, I kept myself so, so lucky and so privileged to be around, and to be around the the, the families of uh, of the of the people that died. You know, what I mean, uh, to be around uh, Lotus, so Chrissy Keegan, and who was just recently passed, and Mrs. McDermott. You know, Gertie Gertie Barrett. Like to, to be around these people is it's very humbling. Like you know, to know that I've survived this, and yet they 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 all kind of. And it's kind of very, it's very an emotional uh, feeling to be around them because they, they look at me and they, you know, they hold me as if I'm one of their own. They, they care about me, you know. Uh, Betty Bissett is, you know, uh, her daughter passed away. She was on the south side in Ringset. Yeah, and uh, every time I meet Betty, it's like meeting, it's like meeting another, another mother. You know, she's just so warm and so loving and, you know, she's just a wonderful person. Uh, and most of these mothers are. And you can understand why they won't give up and they shouldn't give up. And look, they're all getting on there. But like, so long as, you know, we can keep this going. And, you know, so you, I know you asked me, and I digress there, Charlie, about do I get memories and flashbacks. As the campaign goes on, it never leaves you. So you don't get the flashbacks so many, you know, but you do get the the feeling and the memories and it's all there with you all the time. But you don't have the nightmares. You know, you've gone through all that, you know, the, the post-traumatic stress of that, you know, I would say kind of left you somewhere. You don't wear a badge saying that you're a Stardust survivor, but... If somebody meets you, Jimmy, you are a remarkable human being. There's no question of it. You are, you know, you personify something that is full of strength. You've gone through hell and you're still there campaigning to this day, 40 years on, for justice for those who died and for all of the survivors and their families. Yeah, well, thanks for them words. That's very kind words, Charlie. Thank Thank you. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we, we can't give up. We can't just abandon it. Like, it's very easy to just walk away and say, well, look, I survived and I'm okay and that's grand. But uh, Antoinette Keegan would tell you, she would just say, if she's in the middle of a call from a newspaper, from a television, from any, she'd say, ring Jimmy Fitzpatrick. They say, is it okay? If you take his number off me, it's okay. The minute they say, Antoinette, get me, the number. I will do any interview. I will do any amount of uh, talking about the status so that people realise what happened. So that people 
realise that the potential for this is there to happen again. And it shouldn't happen again. But they should see the people that got involved and the people that were involved directly, the families that suffered. People should see them getting justice so that they know that there is justice to be got for people when things happen. People have to be held accountable for things in life. And Jimmy, I think it is fair to say, as we come to the end, that 40 years ago, that fire, that disaster, was one of the biggest disasters in the history of of the Irish state. Yeah, absolutely. It was one of the biggest disasters in the history of the state. And as I've said to you on many occasions, it's one where, you know, uh, progressive governments just keep as I said before, Ireland's a lovely green country and it's like one big green rug to just keep lifting up, sweeping up the, uh, you know, the rubbish and dumping it, as they would say. But we're not rubbish, you know, we're not dirt and we won't go away. So like, as much lifting and sweeping you can do, keep doing it. We'll keep coming back because we're not done till justice is seen, you know. Jimmy, it's, as you say, you're not done until justice is seen. Jimmy Fitzpatrick, uh, it's, an, um, it's, it's just been a real pleasure uh, to talk to you today. And I know the 40th anniversary, as you say, you, you, you're going to keep the campaign going to get justice uh, for all of those who died and for the survivors. Jimmy, thank you very much uh, for talking to me today. Uh, you know... I know this has marked and dominated your life and, you know, I've been following you. But, you know, you've just been absolutely fantastic, your strength and your spirit and your quest for justice. So all I can say is let's let justice be done for uh, the the stardust relatives, for the stardust victims and for the survivors. Uh, So all I can say is, Jimmy, thank you very much to you. uh, Let everybody stay safe uh, in these strange times. Jimmy Slongafold. This podcast was produced by Simon Murta and engineered by Mark Murphy. Thank you. Mm